Chapter Fifteen of the Jewel by Anton Chekhov, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Having made up his mind to lie, not all at once, but piecemeal, Laevsky went soon after one o'clock next day to Samoylenko to ask for the money that he might be sure to get off on Saturday. After his hysterical attack, which had added an acute feeling of shame to his depressed state of mind, it was unthinkable to remain in the town. If Samolenko should insist on his conditions, he thought it would be possible to agree to them and take the money, and next day, just as he was starting, to say that Nadezhda Fyodorovna refused to go. He would be able to persuade her that evening that the whole arrangement would be for her benefit. If Samolenko, who was obviously under the influence of von Koren, should refuse the money altogether or make fresh conditions, then he, Laevsky, would go off that very evening in a cargo vessel, or even in a sailing boat, to Noviathon or Novorossiysk, would send from there an humiliating telegram, and would stay there till his mother sent him the money for the journey. When he went into Samolenko's, he found von Korn in the drawing-room. The zoologist had just arrived for dinner, and, as usual, was turning over the album and scrutinizing the gentlemen in top hats and the ladies in caps. How very unlucky, thought Laevsky, seeing him. He may be in the way. Good morning. Good morning, answered von Korn, without looking at him. Is Alexander Davidich at home? Yes, in the kitchen. Laevsky went into the kitchen, but seeing from the door that Samolenka was busy over the salad, he went back into the drawing-room and sat down. He always had a feeling of awkwardness in the zoologist's presence, and now he was afraid there would be talk about his attack of hysterics. There was more than a minute of silence. Von Koren suddenly raised his eyes to Laevsky and asked, "'How do you feel after yesterday?' "'Very well indeed,' said Laevsky, flushing. "'It really was nothing much.' Until yesterday, I thought it was only ladies who had hysterics, and so, at first, I thought you had St. Vitus's dance. Levsky smiled ingratiatingly and thought, How indelicate on his part! He knows quite well how unpleasant it is for me. Yes, it was a ridiculous performance, he said, still smiling. I've been laughing over it the whole morning. What's so curious in an attack of hysterics is that you know it is absurd and are laughing at it in your heart and at the same time you sob. In our neurotic age we are the slaves of our nerves. They are our masters and do as they like with us. Civilization has done us a bad turn in that way. As Laevsky talked, he felt it disagreeable 
that von Korn listened to him gravely, and looked at him steadily and attentively, as though studying him. And he was vexed with himself that in spite of his dislike of von Korn, he could not banish the ingratiating smile from his face. I must admit, though, he added, that there were immediate causes for the attack, and quite sufficient ones, too. My health has been terribly shaky of late, to which one must add boredom, constantly being hard up, the absence of people and general interests. My position is worse than a governor's. Yes, your position is a hopeless one, answered von Korn. These calm, cold words, implying something between a jeer and an uninvited prediction, offended Levski. He recalled the zoologist's eyes the evening before, full of mockery and disgust. He was silent for a space, and then asked, no longer smiling, "'How do you know anything of my position?' "'You were only just speaking of it yourself. "'Besides, your friends take such a warm interest in you "'that I am hearing about you all day long.' "'What friends? Samoylenko, I suppose. "'Yes, he too.' I would ask Alexander Davidich and my friends in general not to trouble so much about me. Here is Samoylenko. You had better ask him not to trouble so much about you. I don't understand your tone, Levski muttered, suddenly feeling as though he had only just realized that the zoologist hated and despised him and was jeering at him and was his bitterest and most inveterate enemy. "'Keep that tone for someone else,' he said softly, unable to speak aloud, for the hatred with which his chest and throat were choking, as they had been the night before with laughter. Samolenko came in, in his shirt-sleeves, crimson and perspiring from the stifling kitchen. "'Ah, you are here,' he said. "'Good morning, my dear boy. "'Have you had dinner? "'Don't stand on ceremony. "'Have you had dinner?' "'Alexander Davidich,' said Levski, standing up, "'though I did appeal to you to help me in a private matter, "'it did not follow that I released you "'from the obligation of discretion "'and respect for other people's private affairs.' "'What's this?' asked Samoylenko in astonishment. "'If you have no money,' Levski went on, raising his voice and shifting from one foot to the other in his excitement, "'don't give it, refuse it. But why spread abroad in every back street that my position is hopeless, and all the rest of it? I can't endure such benevolence and friend's assistance when there's a shilling worth of talk for a ha'porth of help. You can boast of your benevolence as much as you please, but no one has given you the right to gossip about my private affairs. What private affairs? asked Samolenko, puzzled and beginning to be angry. If you've come here to be abusive, you had better clear out. You can come again afterwards. 
he remembered the rule that when one is angry with one's neighbour, one must begin to count a hundred, and one will grow calm again, and he began rapidly counting. I beg you not to trouble yourself about me, Levsky went on. Don't pay any attention to me. And whose business is it what I do, and how I live? Yes, I want to get away. Yes, I get into debt. I drink. I am living with another man's wife. I'm hysterical. I'm ordinary. I am not so profound as some people. But whose business is that? Respect other people's privacy. Excuse me, brother, said Samolenko, who had counted up to thirty-five. But... Respect other people's individuality, interrupted Laevsky. This continual gossip about other people's affairs, this sighing and groaning and everlasting prying, this eavesdropping, this friendly sympathy, damn it all! They lend me money and make conditions, as though I were a schoolboy. I am treated as the devil knows what. I don't want anything, shouted Laevsky, staggering with excitement, and afraid that it might end in another attack of hysterics. I shan't get away on Saturday, then, flashed through his mind. I want nothing. All I ask of you is to spare me your protecting care. I am not a boy, and I'm not mad, and I beg you to leave off looking after me. The deacon came in, and seeing Levsky pale and gesticulating, addressing his strange speech to the portrait of Prince Vorontsov, stood still by the door as though petrified. This continual prying into my soul, Levsky went on, is insulting to my human dignity, and I beg these volunteer detectives to give up their spying. Enough! "'What's that? What did you say?' said Samarlenko, who had counted up to a hundred. He turned crimson and went up to Laevsky. "'It's enough,' said Laevsky, breathing hard and snatching up his cap. "'I'm a Russian doctor, a nobleman by birth, and a civil councillor," said Samarlenko emphatically. "'I've never been a spy, and I allow no one to insult me.' he shouted in a breaking voice, emphasising the last word. Hold your tongue! The deacon, who had never seen the doctor so majestic, so swelling with dignity, so crimson and so ferocious, shut his mouth, ran out into the entry, and there exploded with laughter. As though through a fog, Levsky saw von Koren get up, and putting his hands in his trouser pockets, stand still in an attitude of expectancy, as though waiting to see what would happen. This calm attitude struck Levsky as insolent and insulting to the last degree. "'Kindly take back your words!' shouted Samolenko. Levsky, 
who did not by now remember what his words were, answered, Leave me alone. I ask for nothing. All I ask is that you and German upstarts of Jewish origin should let me alone, or I shall take steps to make you. I will fight you. Now we understand, said von Koren, coming from behind the table. Mr. Levski wants to amuse himself with a duel before he goes away. I can give him that pleasure. Mr. Levski, I accept your challenge. A challenge, said Levski, in a low voice, going up to the zoologist, and looking, with hatred, at his swarthy brow and curly hair. A challenge, by all means. I hate you. I hate you. Delighted. Tomorrow morning, early, near Kerbalize. I leave all details to your taste. And now, clear out. I hate you, Levski said softly, breathing hard. I have hated you a long while. A duel, yes. Get rid of him, Alexander Davidich, or else I'm going, said von Korn. He'll bite me. Von Korn's cool tone calmed the doctor. He seemed suddenly to come to himself, to recover his reason. He put both arms round Levski's waist, and leading him away from the zoologist, muttered in a friendly voice that shook with emotion, My friends, dear, good, you've lost your tempers, and that's enough, and that's enough, my friends. Hearing his soft, friendly voice, Levski felt that something unheard of, monstrous, had just happened to him, as though he had been nearly run over by a train. He almost burst into tears, waved his hand, and ran out of the room. To feel that one is hated, to expose oneself before the man who hates one, in the most pitiful, contemptible, helpless state. My God, how hard it is, he thought a little while afterwards, as he sat in the pavilion, feeling as though his body were scarred by the hatred of which he had just been the object. How coarse it is! My God! Cold water with brandy in it revived him. He vividly pictured von Koren's calm, haughty face, his eyes the day before, his shirt like a rug, his voice, his white hand, and heavy, passionate, hungry hatred rankled in his breast and clamoured for satisfaction. In his thoughts he felled von Koren to the ground and trampled him underfoot. He remembered to the minutest detail all that had happened, and wondered how he could have smiled ingratiatingly to that insignificant man, and how he could care for the opinion of wretched, petty people whom nobody knew, living in a miserable little town which was not, it seemed, even on the map, and of which not one decent person in Petersburg had heard. 
if this wretched little town suddenly fell into ruins or caught fire the telegram with the news would be read in russia with no more interest than an advertisement of the sale of second-hand furniture whether he killed von koren next day or left him alive it would be just the same equally useless and uninteresting better to shoot him in the leg or hand wound him then laugh at him and let him like an insect with a broken leg lost in the grass let him be lost with his obscure sufferings in the crowd of insignificant people like himself levski went to sheskovsky told him all about it and asked him to be his second then they both went to the superintendent of the postal telegraph department and asked him too to be a second and stayed to dinner with him at dinner there was a great deal of joking and laughing levski made jests at his own expense saying he hardly knew how to fire off a pistol calling himself a royal archer and william tell we must give this gentleman a lesson he said after dinner they sat down to cards levski played drank wine and thought the duelling was stupid and senseless as it did not decide the question but only complicated it but that it was sometimes impossible to get on without it in the given case for instance one could not of course bring an action against von koren and this duel was so far good in that it made it impossible for laevsky to remain in the town afterwards he got a little drunk and interested in the game and felt at ease but when the sun had set and it grew dark he was possessed by a feeling of uneasiness it was not fear at the thought of death because while he was dining and playing cards he had for some reason a confident belief that the duel would end in nothing it was dread at the thought of something unknown which was to happen next morning for the first time in his life and dread of the coming night he knew that the night would be long and sleepless and that he would have to think not only of von koren and his hatred but also of the mountain of lies which he had to get through and which he had not strength or ability to dispense with it was as though he had been taken suddenly ill all at once he lost all interest in the cards and in people grew restless and began asking them to let him go home he was eager to get into bed to lie without moving and to prepare his thoughts for the night sheshkovsky and the postal superintendent saw him home and went on to von koren's to arrange about the duel near his lodgings laevsky met atchmianov the young man was breathless and excited i am looking for you ivan andreitch he said i beg you to come quickly where someone wants to see you someone you don't know about very important business he earnestly begs you to come for a minute he wants to speak to you of something 
For him it's a question of life and death. In his excitement, Achmianov spoke in a strong Armenian accent. Who is it? asked Levsky. He asked me not to tell you his name. Tell him I'm busy, tomorrow, if he likes. How can you? Achmianov was aghast. He wants to tell you something very important for you. Very important. If you don't come, something dreadful will happen. Strange, muttered Laevsky, unable to understand why Achmianov was so excited, and what mysteries there could be in this dull, useless little town. Strange, he repeated in hesitation. Come along, though, I don't care. Achmianov walked rapidly on ahead, and Levsky followed him. They walked down a street, then turned into an alley. "'What a bore this is,' said Levsky. "'One minute, one minute, it's near.' Near the old rampart, they went down a narrow alley between two empty enclosures. Then they came into a sort of large yard and went towards a small house. "'That's Muridov's, isn't it?' asked Levsky. "'Yes.' But why we've come by the back yards, I don't understand. We might have come by the street. It's nearer. Never mind, never mind. It struck Levsky as strange, too, that Achmianov led him to a back entrance and motioned to him as though bidding him go quietly and hold his tongue. This way, this way, said Achmianov, cautiously opening the door and going into the passage on tiptoe. Quietly. Quietly, I beg you, they may hear. He listened, drew a deep breath, and said in a whisper, Open that door and go in. Don't be afraid. Levsky, puzzled, opened the door and went into a room with a low ceiling and curtained windows. There was a candle on the table. What do you want? asked someone in the next room. Is it you, Muridov? Levsky turned into that room and saw Kirilin, and beside him, Nadezhda Fyodorovna. He didn't hear what was said to him. He staggered back and did not know how he found himself in the street. His hatred for von Koren and his uneasiness all had vanished from his soul. As he went home, he waved his right arm awkwardly, and looked carefully at the ground under his feet, trying to step where it was smooth. At home, in his study, he walked backwards and forwards, rubbing his hands, and awkwardly shrugging his shoulders and neck, as though his jacket and shirt were too tight. Then he lighted a candle, and sat down to the table. End of chapter 15